This is a HeadGum Podcast. Craig. Andrew. Do you know about websites, right? I know a little bit about them. You know at least as much about websites as you've learned from listening to me tell you about Squarespace yeah. at the beginning of these podcasts. Uh-huh. Once again, our episode of Overdue this week is brought to you by Squarespace. It's a website that helps you make websites. Do you know, in addition to giving you powerful easy to use drag and drop tools. They also give you tools to use to manage email campaigns. You can grow and engage your audience with Squarespace email campaigns, create powerful email content that matches your website with your existing products, blog posts, and logo. So your messaging is consistent and effective. You can collect donations. You get analytics. You gain powerful insights into who's visiting your site and how they're interacting with your content. Doesn't that all sound pretty it good sounds to you? sounds so powerful. It, Every- makes you, it, it will make you feel powerful. And if you accidentally break anything with all the power that you've been given, Squarespace has 24-7 award-winning customer support. They can answer your questions and fix your oopsies. <laughs> If you want to make a website with Squarespace, go to squarespace.com slash overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash overdue. Start a free trial and save 10% with the offer code overdue. Squarespace, make a website, please. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. Welcome to February. February's here. When I was putting the that sketch, worst of the month. It's a really month. That guy who did the the news, yeah, you know, the big, the in depth feature reporting on how bad February is. <laughs> that was going around Twitter the other day. I did see that. that. Was, he really, that guy really speaks to me. It's, that guy, he's the new, uh, who's the newscast? Not Walter Matthau. Who's the newscaster? Walter Tom Cronkite. Walter Cronkite. Yes. Welcome to Walter Matthau's news broadcast. It's very grumpy. It's the grumpy <laughs> mm-hmm. news because mm-hmm. he's a grumpy old man. Yep. Was he a one of the 12 angry men also? that I, If he was, <laughs> man, that's good casting. <laughs> now that's what i call casting yes. <laughs> this is our book podcast of course yeah every week we read a book usually one that neither of us have read before and then we tell you about it this week we are breaking the rules in a bunch of different ways both yeah. of us read the book uh-huh and we both read it before yeah. but we thought it was important to talk about it craig what what is that book we read mouse by art spiegelman we read both parts part one my father bleeds history and part two which i believe is called here my troubles begin um, mm-hmm. and so we read the whole thing. I believe you and I had both read the read it in school, correct? I did not read. No, I did not read it in school. You'll be surprised to learn that my mm. rural high school with eighty kids in it mm. did not read about mouse for huh. <laughs> for the yeah. I definitely read it in eighth grade English class. Um, I was, and you've been scarred for life because of it because it had cusses in it. I there are so many other things in the world that have made me a bad person and this is one of the things (laughs) i ever experienced that like made me a slightly better person yeah i think Mm -hmm. um i just by you know whatever uh a through line for our conversation today for me just to put that out there is like 
I remember the book as a historical document. I remember what it was uh, adding to what we were learning in my history class. Something that really struck me upon this read, and I, I will be excited to talk about, is the relationship of the Arthur of uh, the author Art Spiegelman, <laughs> the Arthur um, Death of the Arthur, <laughs> uh, and his dad Vladik. So, like that was a thing I did not remember from reading it you know 20 to 25 years ago so sure i can and i can as the frame to the the main narrative i can see why it wouldn't stick in your mind as much but yeah definitely coming to it so i read it the first time when i was in my 20s when oh, wow. i had moved in with a jewish lady mm-hmm. who i later married oh and she was like you never read mouse huh. i have it and so i read it yeah that, that seems like a good time to read it it's yeah, but that's been that's been at least a decade ago at this okay. point because I'm an old, old, aging old man. Yes. And so if you have never heard of this text, uh, which also has pictures, um, it is a graphic novel or a comic. Um, Spiegelman was bristled at it being called a graphic novel initially, but uh, the the publisher pantheon books originally was just like trying to get it into bookstores and he's like that's fine okay well this is this is being published in like the the 80s and very early 90s when the medium was still sort of struggling to get taken seriously i believe this is still the only comic slash slash graphic novel that's won a pulitzer i think that's probably true Um, It it was for sure the first i don't know if it's the only but and the second volume was on the bestseller list for the new york times uh, and Spiegelman fought pretty hard to get it listed in the nonfiction category, mm-hmm. um, which I think will be part of our discussion today um, based around some other things that people have been saying about this book uh, and whether or not it is worth talking about. Yeah. Um, so where do you want to start, Andrew? Do you want to start with like the elephant in the room, which a lot of our I mean, listeners can... probably know? Yeah, I mean, we could we could talk about why we decided it yeah. was it was important to talk about this right now. Um, if you are online at all, um, or maybe even if you're not online and you just like pay attention to the news or something, I don't know what the, the penetration of the story has been. It's it's been on it's been on nightly national news. Um, so. Yeah, but in uh, in early January of this year, uh, the County Board of Education in McMinn County, Tennessee. Yep. Uh, met to have a discussion about the language arts curriculum for the eighth graders um, in the in that school district, and they all ten of them voted unanimously to remove the book Mouse from the curriculum entirely after a very lengthy debate about. Um, I, I believe the the school had already uh, censored some of the swears in it and like blanked out a picture of a nude woman in it. Um, but they were having, you know, there was a big, there's a big chunk of this discussion. I read the entire transcript and there, there are some moments in it, but, (laughs) but it got into some like fair use discussion about like what they legally could do. That was, that would not end up like changing the nature of the work. I saw that, that like one of the, one of the board members was like, well, if, are we allowed to even change it so that we could make it teachable? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, they they ended up with not a lot of fanfare uh, voting unanimously to throw this book out, despite uh, some arguments from educators there about like what the 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 ways that they built the curriculum. Some I think pretty well founded 
uh, worries about it being a slippery slope because if you remove mouse because it has swears in it, then you know yeah. what other book that you know there there are all kinds of books that you teach in that age range. Uh, somebody brought up uh, to Kill a Mockingbird, uh, The Whipping Boy, Bridget Terabithia, um, all things that you know. If if we ban mouse for these reasons, then what do we need to come back and do later to be consistent? Yep. So I don't know. Like I I you know what I bet all these folks who've probably never gotten this level of attention for anything that they've ever done, yeah, <laughs> are gonna are going to have to think really long and hard before they do something like this again. God, I, I hope, hope so. But um, it it also is happening in a moment. So it happened. The news broke like the same week as Holocaust Remembrance Day. Um, it is also happening at a moment for any of our international listeners who are not aware or folks who are not following, like school boards around the country are pushing back against teaching critical race theory or just like broadly banning or otherwise, you know, pushing to the side any book that might be about a marginalized community. Critical um, race theory is a, is a is the shorthand yeah. term that that it's taken but if you look at i think florida in particular is is pushing a lot of the stuff as Texas part of like too, culture yeah. war yeah but uh banning any book that might make uh anybody unquote uncomfortable yeah on the basis of race mostly being mostly about sort of making out, white so. people uncomfortable yeah that's weird weird how that that's yeah weird. mostly about white people who already have power probably they think that maybe they shouldn't be uncomfortable yeah. um well, and then, and then also uh, a little later in January, you had a an attack at a Texas synagogue, which yes. is yep. part of a like a rising tide of hate crimes, specifically against against Jewish people, yep. but just hate crimes in general that yep. have that that have started not started, but like you know uh, risen slowly over the last like decade, half decade or yep. so in this country. So yep. yeah, um, so Art Spiegelman said. In response to CNBC, I've met so many young people who have learned things from my book, um, said of Tennessee, there's something going on very, very haywire there, um, told the New York Times about the objections to the disturbing, quote unquote, imagery in the book. Um, I put I put quotes there. I'm editorializing. I apologize, Mr. Spiegelman, um, that <laughs> as we said, like there were objections to language, there were objections to like nudity and that is often used in these instances to remove a book uh even though that is not necessarily what the book is about mm -hmm. um and it, it should always make you question if that's actually the reason um and it may be for some people but there are others for whom it is probably not um mm -hmm. spiegelman says this is disturbing imagery um but you know what it's disturbing history and he read the minutes of the meeting and said he got the impression that the board members were asking, quote, why can't they teach a nicer Holocaust? Mm -hmm. um, and then a writer named uh, or a historian, Emily Knox, said to Slate, I found these through a Smithsonian Magazine article, um, was just talking about how like in the current media age and with social media and stuff like these types of go to your school board and complain about this work that's being taught in the classroom is getting like easier and easier to organize. Um, it's getting easier to organize, and there's been a concerted effort by um, right-wing elements in, yeah. in American culture, especially to uh, take these kinds of 
concerns, whatever you want to call them, but to, to take these kinds of movements local because fewer people are paying attention. It's mm-hmm. easier to to make a difference just by showing up and yelling because so few people are showing up in the first place. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, I think I think that is that is part of what's going on here for sure because they they make it sound like to read the transcript makes it sound like they've heard from a few people who have been very loud. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, and then, and then you've got some long quotes from some of the folks on the board it just makes it clear that they're very sympathetic to these kinds of arguments. This guy, here's this guy, Mike Cochran saying, uh, so this idea, we have to have this kind of material in class in order to teach history. I don't buy it. Not saying that there is not important material. And that that's, this is a common theme that recurs through this is like the Holocaust is bad, but boy not saying that there isn't important material i've read it and read through all of it and the parts that i talks about his father the father is the guy that went through the holocaust i really enjoyed i liked it there were other parts that were completely unnecessary we're talking about teaching ethics to our kids and it starts out with the dad and son talking about when the dad lost his virginity it wasn't explicit but it was in there you see the naked pictures you see the razor the the blade where the man and the mom is cutting herself uh, you see her laying in a pool of own blood. You have all this stuff in here. Again, reading this to myself, it was a decent book until the end. I thought the end was stupid, to be honest with you. A lot of the cussing had to do with the son cussing out the father. So I don't really know how that teaches our kids any kind of ethical stuff. It's just the opposite. And t- instead of treating his father with some kind of respect, he treated his father like he was the victim. Oh, my. Uh, you go all the way back to the first grade, second grade, and they're reading books that have a picture of a naked man riding a bull. It's not vulgar. It's something you would see in an art gallery, but it's unnecessary. So teachers have gone back and put tape over the guy's butts so the kids aren't exposed to it. So my problem is, it looks like the entire curriculum is developed to normalize sexuality, normalize nudity, and normalize vulgar language. If I was trying to indoctrinate somebody's kids, this is how I would do it. You put this stuff just enough on the edges so the parents don't catch it, but the kids, they soak it in. I think we need to relook at the entire curriculum says Mike Cochran. If you, like me, just got a headache, you need to run for school board. You need to. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, say, I'm being a little loud for comic effect, but like, that guy shouldn't be there. Then this same fella uh, went on to read a poem that was one, not part of the eighth grade curriculum and two, not being taught. <laughs> But Dude. some a, a poem that he had received a complaint about. Um, I'm just wild about Harry, and Harry's wild about me. The heavenly blisses of his kisses fill me with ecstasy. He's sweet, just like chocolate candy, just like honey from the bee. Oh, I am just wild about Harry, and he's just wild about me. This poem this man read in front of, <laughs> as a part of this meeting. Can you even guess what word that it was that he had an issue with? Ecstasy? Yeah, it was ecstasy. Come on! And he's saying it's you know, nakedness, vulgarity, it's veiled, sexual, whatever, whatever. And I... This Puritan like, stuff is rotten to the core. It's... And I, like, was around a lot of this coming up. So I'm not I'm not saying I'm sympathetic to it. I'm saying I, yeah, like, no. under, I understand it. Yeah, I, I know. like, know people who have this... Who have espoused this mindset of, like, you know, why can't we just do it without the cusses? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, like... I don't know. Like we do a we do a clean intentionally yeah. swear free podcast. Yeah, and I was thinking about like why why do we do that? How is what we do different from what they are proposing that they want to do? Sure, 
I think my argument to that, this is, this, this is I, hmm. Just chat, just table no, talk. No, this is good table talk. My response to that is we include plenty of books where there is cussing, where there is vulgarity, where there is objectionable content, um, and we talk about it when it's necessary. For Yeah, for yeah we books, do, like, especially in... in- like in quotes, we will we will yep. read quotes that contain that stuff. We will mark occasionally episodes as explicit. explicit. Yep. It's just like I just know I like there are podcasts I can't listen to in the car anymore because Henry repeats literally everything that he hears. Yeah. And I just like I want to teach him, you know, swearing and how to do it well, like on my own on my own time. I, I think part of it is because we are we are making a show that is about other works of art. So I mm-hmm. feel less precious about what we say. Mm-hmm. And I think you, the the thing you just said is that like podcasting as a medium, I have a little less control or a little less of a sense of where people are experiencing it. And so yeah. if you not being able if someone not being able to listen to it in their car uh because of who they might be with or who they might like whatever, like I don't want to throw them a curveball. Um yeah. But if it's an episode where we think it is necessary, yeah, we mark it as explicit and we just move yeah. from there. So, well, and you, and you know what? You know the people who these school boards really need to be concerned about are the people who have emailed us saying that they're using our podcast as learning aids. That's really that's what the, they need that, to be concerned about. That's the about. stuff. Yeah, we should not be in schools. Um, <laughs> ban us if you got to ban something. <laughs> so. I th- I think but when yeah, I just this this trans we can link it in the yep. show notes the the transcript. Um, can I make a can I make pretty, a part about why it, we should link it? Can I make a sure. can I make an argument or sure. just like why people might want to go read it? Like yeah. this book is a primary document, even if mm-hmm. it is a, a son's visual interpretation of his father's story, like. It is a primary, it is as close to a primary document as these two people were ever going to make. Yeah. And so I think engaging with the primary documents of this moment is also worthwhile. Um, and that connects to why I, you know, when we were talking about doing this episode, like I was pretty, I found myself thinking if the issue is whether or not this book is going to be in front of people who for whom it should be in front of like i want it to be on the list of episodes we've done like that yeah. you know um, sure and I, the, the other reason i i think if you want to read the the transcript that that you should is just like the just like how sort of mundane it is yeah and how yeah. if you just you know listed what the concerns were is that they didn't want to expose kids to swearing and nudity which we can like I got news for everybody, but by eighth grade, your kid has sworn and seen nudity. <laughs> and they are way more, they are way closer to being the adult that you should be ready to develop a relationship with. They are still, mm-hmm. chill, they are still kids and yeah. you need to, you need to love them as kids in that moment. But like an eighth grader by and large is way closer to the person they're going to be when they're 25. And you need to like, make make what peace you need to make with that um yeah. so that you can engage with them as people mm-hmm. but um but yeah just the the way that the concerns don't you know they're, they're saying they do want to teach the holocaust they just have objections to like this and this specific thing and isn't that a little reasonable and can't we like accommodate that and whatever whatever and 
and like it's that and it's also like the abruptness with which the yeah board just has the vote like right like at the end mm. after this these long um the, these just blocks of text from educators educators who are not voting members of the the board but educators who have put together the curriculum they've said you know we have followed all the the state rules that we have to like this is a book that's recommended for this age group by the you know by the state yep we're we're conforming to everything like this is you know they they go through how they teach four units and they and they try to build the curriculum in such a way that they can like critically engage with one work or with a couple of works over and over again so that kids aren't just like learning the vocab and like moving on. They can really sort of learn what they're talking about and, and hopefully absorb it in a more like lasting and, and informative way. And it is, yeah. And it's, I, I really feel for them because they, they are there making their best argument and it's, it's clear. I mean, most of the, the people on the board don't even speak at all. In, yeah. in the transcript it's just it's clear that most people have just come there with their mind made up and they're going to do what they're going to do but like especially in the light of of how uh the right wing is is targeting school boards and targeting local government like i feel like this kind of thing is people are not showing up to have a good faith argument with you nope about like about the facts and then like coming up with the the best thing based on like the inv- available information that they have like people are people are showing up with their minds made up and they're going to do what they want. Yeah. yeah. And if they get power, then they just can. <laughs> and there's like not anything that anybody else can do about it. So I don't know. It's frustrating. It is. And it a is. little scary. Yeah, it is. But, uh, but yeah, go ahead and go ahead and read this. And then, yeah, like Craig said, maybe run for school board if you can. I don't know. Yeah. Um, let's talk about, Spiegelman, where this book came from, I have a planned kind of lighthearted section in the middle of his biography that I want to make sure we spend some time with, because as you might notice, this is not a lighthearted episode. You want to take a break first? I know that we're, yeah. I actually would love one. Let's take a break. (laughs) Hey, you seem like you could use a break. Andrew, you know who talked about help a lot? Uh, the Beatles. You got it in one. <laughs> help with help from my friends. Help. It's a whole move. Anyway, uh, <laughs> if you have problems with this ad read and you need to talk to someone about it or just like whatever else is going on in your life, uh, let me tell you about our sponsor this week, BetterHelp, which makes professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient. Did you know where this ad was going better help will assess your needs I can't say and that i did i've got <laughs> to say it's getting better help a little better help all the time <laughs> better help will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist you can send them a message at any time and you can schedule weekly sessions over video or on your phone it's affordable financial aid is available and the service is available to clients worldwide I want you to start living a happier life today. As an, as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash overdue. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, betterhelp.com slash overdue. Craig, tell me about this guy. Okay, I'll tell you about Art Spiegelman. Tell me about him. Born in Sweden in 1948 
immigrated to the United States with his parents in 1951. Um, a lot of his, like, the biography of his family and his, you know, 20s and 30s is this book. So there's mm-hmm. only so much of that we need to cover outside of the context of the of the work. But... Yeah. Uh, he did reject his family's aspiration for a career in dentistry and instead pursued cartoons. Um, he began drawing professionally at the age of 16. He went to Harper College at SUNY Binghamton. Uh, he did leave college after his mother took her life in the late 60s. Some of that is covered in the book. Um, he went on to become a creative consultant for Topps Trading Cards, Andrew. Okay. And this, he worked with them over several decades, 60s to the 80s. And two of his primary works were Wacky Packages okay. and The Garbage Pail Kids. Are you familiar with either of these? I mean, Wacky Packages is what it's like trying to get FedEx to <laughs> deliver boxes to my house. Holy am I right? crap. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wacky Packages were peel and stick stickers like die cut stickers that you could put like on stuff and they were all parodies of labels for commercially available products okay so what does that mean like you could get a a sticker that instead of animal crackers it was cracked animals or that's that's funny or rats crackers that's some that's a mad magazine type or shenanigans right there is what that is or Moron salt. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Uh, That's actually pretty. Fourteen funny. of the forty some uh, wacky packages in the first run were discontinued due to cease and desist letters from the companies that have been parodied. <laughs> some of them include Cover Ghoul, Crust Toothpaste, uh, the Wikis cereal, Wiki. Okay, Minute Lice hostage cakes and six up beverage which says on the bottle you hate it it hates you (laughs) six up (laughs) he's just he's working in this underground comic scene and he's getting just like really taking it to seven up yeah i love it really really taking them down because you know who could use to see who stand to be taken down a peg is that cool spot that guy <laughs> gotta get that guy he's just uh, that die. guy teaches our kids to be irreverent to their elders <laughs> with his sunglasses and his soda he's drinking he's not even wearing clothes mm, no he's naked nudity who knows where his genitals are i don't we gotta get him <laughs> uh he also worked on the garbage pail kids which uh came out in the 80s as a response to the cabbage patch kids um i don't like them as much as i like the wacky packages they're just garbage pail kids are pretty sometimes they're just gross they're just gross there's one they're just unpleasant there's one called leaky lou who's a baby that's full of holes and all the water he's drinking is falling out of him in a way i really don't like yeah um there's a bunch of them that are just like toddlers drinking and smoking (laughs) it's really bizarre (laughs) there's a kid named itchy richie who's just covered in bugs uh, Mona Loser is pretty good. Mona Loser's funny, you know. As as a as a parent, yeah, I don't find any of these. <laughs> I don't find any of the baby related ones funny. 
No, I thought you wouldn't. My um, kid is very leaky right now because he has a cold, and mm. he keeps he keeps coming up to me and saying, "Boogie's off, boogie's, boogie's off." Because he wants off. me to he wants me to wipe his boogie's oh, off of his face, buddy. <laughs> uh, but you would recognize yeah, no, the what's what's kid funny about toddler smoking? Ban this guy. Ban him. Well, here's mind. why I don't want to. I'm going to close the book on the garbage pail kids right now, Andrew. I went mm-hmm. to the official garbage close that book and then ban it. I went to the <laughs> official garbage pail kids website to try and learn a little bit more, and the first thing I saw was nfts <laughs> so i noped out of that website so hard. oh no oh no i do not want a leaky loo nft not at all yeah like non-fungible tommy or whatever the <laughs> garbage pail kid would be man spiegelman well, you had fun um Come back, Art Spiegelman. Get rid of these NFTs. Please just show up and tell them they're stupid. Anyway, um, he also taught at the School for Visual Arts in New York. He founded a, a comics company, comics with an X, Andrew, for adults. Well, that's how you know it's underground and cool and yeah. stuff. Um, with this, his, this, ain't, this ain't Garfield. This ain't Ziggy. It is not. This is comics with an X. Um, he founded this uh, outlet called Raw uh, with his wife, Francoise, in 1980. And that is initially, I think, where Mouse was serialized. He had come up with the idea for Mouse as a three-page story in an anthology called Funny Animals. Um, <laughs> Sounds that hilarious. Some guy was putting together. Mm-hmm. And it, he had initially thought about making a comic about uh, like the KKK and uh, the black experience. And he was like, I don't think I should do that. And I don't know that my art would properly parody art that is already racist caricature so i'm not right, gonna do yeah. that how do you caricature a caricature yeah um so he wisely noped out of that and then he turned to uh he wanted it was something serious that he was working on so he turned to his dad's experience with the holocaust um and that sparked some initial conversations and then that would turn into mouse proper um, which eventually was published the first six... It had been published serial, serially in Raw, and then uh, Pantheon picked up the first six chapters, which I believe is the first half. It's Mouse yeah. One. Mm-hmm. Um, and they got it published a few months before uh, Fievel, an American Tale, came out, the movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. Which I don't know that I'd ever seen the first Fievel movie. I'd seen Fievel Goes West. And it's about Jewish mice fleeing Russians. <laughs> and Spiegelman was pretty sure that Steven Spielberg was ripping him off. Okay. And he has nothing but bad things, actual curse words to say about Fievel. Um, Careful, that stuff will get you banned. Yeah, so, and uh, according to this Entertainment Weekly article from 1991, uh, a spokesperson for Spielberg had no comment. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I bet they don't. But he realized that he wasn't going to sue Spielberg because he didn't have a smoking gun, and he had also kind of based some of his approach to it off of stuff like Kafka and stuff that was already just kind of out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. but I didn't realize that that he there were multiple articles talking about how they had to beat Fievel to print, even though Fievel's a movie. Um, (laughs) And so that's, you know, this is his big work. Um, It comes out. It's well received. The second volume comes out. um, 
And just like judging from the contents of the second volume, the first volume came out and existed before the second volume. Correct. Yeah. Came yeah. out like, like before the work was, was done because the second volume opens with a passage that is partly him reacting Don Quixote style to the Res- publication yeah. of the first. Yeah. Um, it wins a special Pulitzer in 1992 uh, and then for the first time is published as a complete unit in 1996. Um, and then he's gone on to do other stuff. He launched a, a comic series for kids with a lot of creators in 2000. In 2004, he published work meditating on 9-11 and the invasion of Iraq. Um, in 2011, a book called Meta Mouse came out, which was a lot of additional content interviewing him, biography stuff. I found some quotes uh, from that about kind of the animal conventions in the book that I think we'll bring up at some point. So Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, like, the book, as you said, Andrew, like, is very aware of itself. So where do you want to... What overview do you want to start with? And then I mean, we can just kind of talk about what struck us in the book. Right, because we're not going to do a blow-by-blow plot synopsis of this, because at a at a low level, the blow-by-blow plot synopsis is the Holocaust, right? Yeah. Like in, in the uh, late 30s into the mid-40s, uh, Germany mm-hmm. takes over a bunch of Europe, including Poland. Most of this does take place in uh, German-occupied Poland. Um, including out at the uh, Auschwitz camp. Yep. Um, and yeah, they they tighten the screws on every Jewish person living in territory that they control. Mm-hmm. Eventually, sending many of them to these uh, labor slash death camps mm-hmm. to do backbreaking menial labor and then be killed. Yep. And that's like that's it. Uh, so the you know w- what to talk about. In this book, I think, like, we've discussed a lot about, like, how to do a, productive is not the word, how how to do a, like, a, what, what is the word I'm looking for? Well, an, how, to, how to talk about this book. Well, an episode that is not redundant to the book itself. Yeah. Um, an episode that is not redundant to history itself. Um, and also an episode that's not just look at this current controversy. Yeah. Yeah, let's not let let's try to ride the wave of the this thing being in the news. And you I know think what I mean? that's why I wanted. That's why I mentioned up top how struck I was by the frame narrative, which even to call it a frame narrative, I think does it a little bit of, uh, it it undersells how kind of important it is to the tenor of the work. Yeah, because the the plot of the book is the Holocaust, but like the B plot of the book is. Art Spiegelman working through his relationship with his dad. And I don't even know if he works through it because that implies that he gets all the way to the other end of something. Yeah. In that, (laughs) but sort of wrestling with like, he he feels in a lot of ways that his dad like treats him like a, like a kid, like doesn't have some like fundamental respect for him or, or feels like his dad does all this annoying stuff that pushes every everybody away but then also his dad like survived the holocaust and a lot of that is luck but some of it wasn't yeah yeah and so so like being impressed by this guy and like awed by this guy and maddened by him and and maddened by him because just like dealing with him day to day seems like a chore for most of the people around him yeah and but 
if you begrudge him that, then, you know, are you not extending him the grace that he mm-hmm. deserves to be extended as a survivor of literally the Holocaust? Yeah. <laughs> and so that's, that's a, that's a loop that he gets caught in, in this book, like over and over again, I think. Yeah. And that truly was like, oh, this, you know, especially coming into our episode as like, well, we should cover this book because of how it's being talked about and its place in curricula. And, but it is very much about uh, the relationship of someone born in the 40s or 50s to people who went through the Second World War, specifically to people who went through the Holocaust. Like, it is just this interesting, uh, very personal dynamic of a different version of survivor's guilt, a different version, or maybe not even survivor's guilt, but just like Art's own guilt of not being able to extend his dad the grace maybe he thinks he deserves on a moment-to-moment basis Mm -hmm. but also like art being like how do i as a person move through the world if i'm not allowed to be mad at my dad for being mean to me sometimes like right that stuff is really fascinating and it's woven into this like really uh When I say blunt, I don't mean that it is crude. I mean that it is uh, incredible. Direct. Direct, yes. Like direct account of what happened to people in Poland that went to Auschwitz. Um, So like the two timelines of the book are Art and is interviewing his dad in like the 70s and early 80s maybe. Yeah, 70s and early 80s, mostly in uh, his apartment in New York. And then... Up in the Catskills, I think. Something like that. Yeah, and then also starting, like, the the late 30s in Poland. Up through 1945, yeah. Up through 1945, 46, yeah. Yeah. Um, So, his dad has remarried. As we said, Art's mom took her life in 1968. That's a part of the book the the short comic that he wrote about it makes its way into mouse i did not yeah, remember it's re- that. reprinted in mouse yeah. yeah um it's like very german expressionist and art had a terrible time going through that trauma and uh his dad finds that comic and like was kind of really mad about it um uh but art is trying to get this story out of his dad which is tough because as you said everybody kind of finds him really tough Mm-hmm. Um, later in the book, Vladik reveals that he destroyed some of Art's mom's diaries from that time. All of Art's mom's diaries. Oh yeah, because what is he? He finds at the end of the book, he just finds photographs and stuff. Is that what it is? He finds he finds photographs. Yeah, but um, he you know Art's mom kept a journal of of what she had been through, and and Vladik as part of his grieving process after she know, died. She dies. Yeah. Uh, just like burns it and art like one chapter ends with him like calling his dad a murderer and like stalking away because he's so frustrated and and, like sick and so so it's it's worth talking about so so the book is is all sold at i don't know if sold's right the the book is all constructed as though it is a first person account from one person yeah about I mean it's it's like close third person I guess because but but you're getting it all in in a in a survivor's own words about about what the thing was yeah. but then if you look at 
the uh, beginning of book two is a section that is mostly by art, like not, not even art as he exists in the continuity of mouse, but like art, the, the person who is writing the book yeah. mouse. And you can tell the, you can tell that there's an additional layer of remove because art is still a mouse, but he is a man wearing a mouse mask. Yeah. Like strapped to his face instead of just being a, an anthropomorphized mouse. Yep. Uh, and so you get, you know, him talking to his therapist who also was a Holocaust survivor. And like, you do get the idea that he is, he has talked to multiple people. He's done a lot of other research to get like the, the look of, of things, right. Mm -hmm. Um, I know. I know. Spiegelman did. He went to Auschwitz in '79. I think yeah. before he started actually working on the on the book in a like solidified form. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, he is pretty frank about the fact that like actually talking to a survivor as his therapist like is helping him through this. But his therapist, uh, I think his I think his last name is Pavel. I could be wrong. Um, is like at one point says something like. I don't know what these sto- if these stories are worth anything because the people who didn't make it we don't have their stories and like we don't not only we don't have their stories but th- there is a survivors like bias like yeah, there is yeah. a bias toward people who survive because if they survive then they must have done something or there must have been something like deserving about them yeah and in reality, no, like the, the best people didn't survive. The best people didn't die. It was mostly, it was random. Yep. Yep. Um, and like you, and art is like, is working through this thing where he's, where he's like, like I, like I said, impressed with or in awe of his dad and then his therapist turns that around and is like, well, does, does that mean that the people who died like they're worthy of scorn or they're not to be impressed Mm -hmm. with or you know it's it's a it's really complicated stuff what i was struck by both with art and his dad and then also with the the therapist also being a holocaust survivor like like why i think it is worth making a stink about this specific book being pulled from schools right now yeah sure is you and i when we grew up I, I think we were at the at the tail end of an era where like World War II vets and Holocaust survivors, they, like they were just people who you could meet walking around, like yeah. living their lives. Like, yes. I think even once we were getting into like middle and high school and whatever, it, it, it started tra- to transition to this thing where like these people would need to be like, you you need to go and find them. Like they, they're still, and, and this is still true now. Like you need to go out and, and, and find them and they need to be the focal point of an assembly or something. But it's, it's not, not so much a thing where they're just like walking around, like influencing our like public sphere and yes. our conversations yep. and our policy and whatever. Like it, it, I don't think it's a coincidence at all. And I, I don't think I'm saying anything like particularly profound or smart or like new when I say this, but I don't think it's a coincidence that, we are seeing this uptick in these kinds of hate crimes. We're seeing this uptick in, in people who frankly are not upset to be like associated with Nazis. Yep. Uh-huh. Yep. Or, or people who are like proudly co-opting that, that language and that imagery imagery. And, and I'm not, I'm not saying that this is, is true of the, the McMinn school, no, school board no, people. No. I'm saying this is a separate thing. Um, yeah. I would that, agree with that's that. happening on, on like 4chan forums and on Reddit. Well, and on, can I say other, other other places on the internet? But but 
these survivors are like this firsthand knowledge, this firsthand experience is fading at the same time as this like tide of very familiar looking hate is, is coming back. And that's like to have a direct, mostly firsthand account of this being taught to kids when they're impressionable, when their minds are more open, I think it's just like such an important thing. And it seems like such a, tragedy to to throw that away but sure go ahead no no the the thing you just said at the end i want to make sure i think spiegelman had said at least once that like he he thought the visual medium was very important for generations moving forward right he doesn't devote his life to comics with an x if he doesn't think that um (laughs) but i i think he the garbage pail kids are just like so important for the future generations to have just he just is aware that it is a different way to communicate that generations are getting increasingly visual in terms of the media that they consume. And so this is important from that perspective. The other thing, this is not a causation I'm trying to make, but it, it, I just want to point out that like what you're talking about in terms of the generation that we are losing contact with just by the natural passage of time, like the, the curves that intersect are like there's a rise in the like the a, cha- a fundamental change in how we experience the world vis-a-vis the internet and social media and the oh, yeah, and the modern sure. media apparatus mm-hmm. and to not have their voices really be part of that is is i think i don't know i don't know what would be different if we were going through the current media landscape and and communication landscape but it were 30 years ago. I don't, I don't think that I don't think I'm comfortable making a bold claim on that front, but I do well, it's, think it's, that and the, it's, listen, it's, it's hard to know because the generation directly after the world war two generation has just like grabbed onto every level, yeah. every lever of power and influence. And they're going to cling to it until they literally die. Yeah. Like these same people have been determining I, but I, I think everything about our policy you, and the, the way our public sphere is for decades. And it's, yeah, you know, like there's the, it, it, it is both a, it is kind of cheeky, but it is also super serious. Like Godwin's law is a thing for a reason. Like the internet deals in extremes and it came to to modern life at an era where too many people thought that this type of extremity and extreme hate was gone or like mm-hmm. kind of rendered irrelevant by by being like just small pockets of people who don't matter and unfortunately that is not the case and uh, an un- a belief that that was the case has uh, allowed the things like the internet to make it stronger um so i don't know that's just kind of similar i think like the generational thinking around why yeah people should know that this book exists and have experienced it um kind of dovetails with that yeah and then reading the the transcript like the end project of this like of this module of this unit of you know teaching that included mouse had the students do like doing something like making a comic strip basically like yeah. like making visual art sort of imagining their own interaction with a, a Holocaust survivor. And like, I, I, I think that's what makes this like singularly valuable as opposed mm. to just like a textual description It's like the one thing is if you're being assigned it for homework, you might not read it. You might 
skim over it. Like just yeah. the fact that there are pictures there to go with the words makes the, you know. Yeah, for sure. Makes your mind have to do that much less work, yeah. which I, which I think increases the chances for, for a kid who's sort of reading it because they've been assigned it. It increases the chances that they will actually engage with it and digest it and like, yeah. You know, follow through with yeah for sure <laughs> and then and then the way the cur- cur- curriculum's been built to like make them take that unique like useful format and like make it their own and and mm-hmm. not you know not it's it's a thing where you can't you know you you can't make the font bigger and make the margins bigger and like pass off yeah. three pages as five pages you like have you to have to it. you have to do the thing and and yeah, I just I think that's an interesting. I, I'm not saying that. Listen, I'm not saying that we have to trick high schoolers into doing work. <laughs> I don't think that's true of all of them. No, but anything you can do to ease that, you know, ease the friction there. Yeah, and like actually get them to to engage with and and critically. The other thing that I- think about the material, I think, it is worth doing, and that's and that's why that is why I'm frustrated with this. Yeah, the banning of this. Imp- Particular. The other thing I find, mo- I, I kind of find it moving from a slight, from like a like a parallel angle, Andrew, in the sense that like certainly in my experience working with kids in the classroom, like the other part of it is like showing them a work like this and and asking them to engage with it is also a way to say like this is yet another tool you can use when you see something that you need to t- to like tell a story about. Like mm-hmm. you don't mm-hmm. have to work in a medium that doesn't work for you and if like if that's going to be the difference between you telling a story that needs to be told and not like find something that works for you and use those tools so like this is spiegelman's way to get the story across this is his way to document what his father went through and if that is like one more person who knows that that is a tool set available to them like that's a net positive as well for whatever they're going through Mm -hmm. um and like to that end, I think we should we should probably talk about the visual language of this book and we, what has yeah. struck us about it. I, I wanted to talk about like I wanted to talk about the visual language because it's very distinctive and, and grabby. And then I also one other device, I guess, is the the word I'd use that the book yeah. employs very smartly is so Vladek is speaking in english you know on a usually it's sometimes artists taking notes sometimes he's got a tape recorder but like his voice is is being used directly and art like preserves the not broken but like sort of odd like second language yeah english rhythm that, yeah. that vladek uses like that that is preserved through most of the book in a way that i think occasionally comes across as as humorous because like intentionally on on art's part yeah but like it also gives Vladek this very distinctive voice and like preserves and centers him as like the the person who's experiencing this and going through it and like relaying it to all of us in in a way that i was really struck by on this this read through yep does that make sense that really stood out to me um i know that there is it reminded me of um i've read articles about reporters in like in the sports industry like how to take quotes from athletes that are not native english speakers Mm -hmm. and like how to present that in a way that is 
as true to what they were communicating as possible without like taking their voice away from them. And I think you're right, Andrew, like it has the effect in this book of making some of his stuff more memorable. Like it's just because it is part of how he has processed the information and like in the parts where he is in one of the camps, I think it's when he's in Auschwitz, like he is one of the ways he's surviving is teaching a superior English, like being an English Mm -hmm. tutor Mm -hmm. because he has the language. So like, being aware of what his speech is is just really important to that character. I did find a note that like in one of the Hebrew translations in Israel, they did not attempt to replicate that at all because they, whoever the translator was for that edition kind of disagreed with that, like with that device. Um, But a later translation kind of accounted for it. So like even among, uh, Hebrew translations there's kind of a disagreement on how to present that but it it is a huge like part of the character in the original version of the work um Mm -hmm. I know you want to talk about the visual language but there's also just talking about the the scenes that play out in the present day with Vladek like oh please annoying everybody around no 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 please but there's there's this bit where he is you know his his second wife has has temporarily left him he has had one of a couple of health scares that happened in the book and art. And um, I think she's his wife at this point, but like art and Francoise have, yeah. have, have come up to, Oh yeah. To sort of keep him company and make sure that he's okay. And, and he's doing this thing where he is, you know, he can't have salt and, and Mala, his second wife, she left these two open salts and there's a special case cereal and it has salt in it. So he can't have it. <laughs> so he can't have any. And they're talking about, you know, arts trying to engage him on stuff that was happening while he was in Auschwitz. Like, uh, how did you become a tin man again? He's asking him because working in like the, the tin Smith shop is something that Vladek did to like, if if you could, if you could be valuable to people, you could buy yourself time, and, a, and that's that's sort of Lodic's like overarching philosophy. Yeah. It's just like trying to make sure that he seems less expendable than than others around yep. him. Yep. Uh huh. Um. And and Vladek says Molly could go for a whole evening out with her friends and leave for me nothing cooked to eat or drink. Sigh, you see how it is? I have now one more time and unnecessary suffering in my life. My God. And it's just the way that he, like this horrible stuff has happened to him. And he is telling it to Art and and Art is like relaying it in a way that really like brings the horror of it all to the forefront with like these very haunting, like black and white visuals. And, but, but also Vladek is willing to use it like to get refunds for stuff at the grocery store. It's unbelievable. (laughs) He's a singular human. And like, Mm -hmm. that is really, well, wait, that grocery and that grocery store part. That's also when, isn't that when they pick up the hitchhiker, when they pick up the black hitchhiker Yeah, Mm -hmm. and, uh, Vladek is extremely racist. Super racist, yeah. And thinks that this black guy is going to steal from their car. Mm-hmm. And Art's wife, Francoise, is like, what is happening? This is awful. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think we really get Art pushing back on it at all in the moment. It's more just like, yeah, my dad is a complicated guy. And well, I think Art 
is I, he knows that conflict with his dad is just going to arise, so he's not going out of his way to pick yeah. extra fights. Yeah. You know? and it, and it's also clear that like from that scene, Francoise has had minimal time with Vladek also. Um, I think by choice, perhaps. But yeah, I, the the fact that he includes that, the fact that he includes all of these moments where he finds his dad difficult, where his dad is objectively bad or difficult, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is part of what art is working through, which is like, how do we talk about this terrible thing that happened to folks that, Maybe like if you met them personally, you might not get along with, but they mm-hmm. were people and they were human and this happened to them. And that's like, and then, and then like the whole other, there's the whole dimension that art's working through of his father essentially being a, a Jewish stereotype in a lot of ways. That's another like, thing. It's something yeah. he brings up a few times. Yeah. Where he's like, do I put this in? He talks yeah. to, well, and what Mala, the, the woman that uh, Vladik has remarried um, says like, a lot of us went through this and none of us are like Vladek. Yeah, yeah, right. And she is exasperated. She comes back to him and and they work it out, but you get the sense that it's always going to be work for the two of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I think, yeah. Go ahead. Just that I think the, the complicated relationship that Art has to his complicated father is a yet another reason that this work has value because it does... What? Here's something, Andrew. Well, it is a black and white comic. The issues presented am- among the characters are not always black and white. Okay. All right. It's too bad that local news is dying because with that kind of that kind of summing <laughs> up of the situation, you could really. Gonna, I really I am seeing career, you at that baby. desk. You could have a career, baby. <laughs> um. So yeah, I think the the hitchhiker episode is is a good segue into like the visual part of the the Mm. book that you wanted to talk about because the hit so you know all the all the jews in the book are depicted as mice even francoise who mentions that she converted like there's a conversation that she and art are having about how art should depict her in the book because she's french but also she converted and so yeah (laughs) and so she's depicted as a mouse but apparently wasn't a foregone conclusion but this, you know, the the hitchhiker that they pick up is a is a black dog, and yep. like dogs are used to depict Americans, yep. and and you know, uh, so what you've got mice for for Jewish people, you've got dogs for Americans, you've got frogs for French people you've, when they appear, you've got uh, pigs for Polish for people, poles, yeah, you've got um, there is, did you say? fish for british people because that does happen mm-hmm. there is a swedish there's a bunch of swedish deer that show yeah, up deer, at one deer point. is interesting mm-hmm. um and there's at least one point one of the family members that they are with um it is clear that uh a jewish person has married Married a Gentile, a is Gentile, what they say. A yeah, German they mar- Gentile. married a and then the German. So the Germans are cats, which is yeah. which. I think the the mouse cat thing is clearly the uh, the. The I have some quotes. The to idea this. Yeah. from which all these other like you know ethnic animal representations spring, but yep. yeah, so you've got uh, you know a, a a mouse married to a cat, and then the kids are like mice with cat stripes on yeah. them. Which yeah, is- well, because and he was like I. So that comes out. I found some quotes from 
the 2011 text I mentioned earlier, Meta Mouse, which is a great name anyway. Um, and he never met a mouse I didn't like. That's clever. Yeah. If comedy wasn't dying, I might say that you had a career. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, no, cancel culture. He totally geez, killed it. It's a, it's a mad world out there. Um, that one's just for us. Uh, <laughs> he talks about taking inspiration from Kafka's Josephine the Singer or the Mouse Folk with uh, that has a metaphor for mice as Jewish people. He also is very explicitly taking inspiration from words that Hitler used and uh, a documentary made in the 40s that really leaned on mouse and rat imagery as a way to dehumanize the Jewish people. Um, and like you said, Andrew, like cats and mice kind of go together. And so once he like started from there, uh, he was like contrasting it with Tom and Jerry where like Jerry's really small and Tom is really big. Right. And that has like a David and Goliath thing in the cartoon, but that he didn't want that here. So I have this long quote I'm going to read. When I began work on The Long Mouse, my first impulse had me drawing large cats and small mice. By the time I solved the problem to my satisfaction, I'd minimized the disparity so that the cats and mice became more or less overt masks. I'll talk about that in a second. I liked working with a metaphor that didn't work all that well, though. I certainly <laughs> didn't want my metaphor to work as an endorsement of Nazi ideology or as an implicit plea for sympathy, like all look at the cute defenseless little mouse, to equalize them in scale. And what he's meaning there is that these are all like human characters. They just happen to have like mouse heads and tails or whatever, right? right? Mm -hmm. To equalize them in scale. I don't even know that they have tails. The mice do because there's the part where they are disguising themselves as poles and Anya, um, Vladik's wife, her tail is sticking out of her coat. Oh, sure. Her, okay. Yeah. Because yeah. mo- in most of the the they are not panels. They're not. Yeah. They're not seen. Good point. Okay. Good okay. Point. Good. Good. Good catch. Though. Um, he says to equalize them in scale didn't mean to give them equal power, but it didn't put the mice necessarily at the total biological disadvantage that the metaphor otherwise implies. I thought that was super smart. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because because otherwise it's like oh this is just the animal kingdom this yeah. is just, this is the way it's supposed to be exactly. which is which is where you get to the endorsement of Nazi ideology. Yes, he says he was interested thing. in class and racial oppression. That's what he was going for. To talk about the polls, he says he took inspiration from Animal Farm and Charlotte's Web, where pigs are featured prominently, and he kind <laughs> of he was. I had seen that some Polish readers did not love being called pigs, but he was interested in this idea that like, you know, you have characters like Wilbur who are very endearing and pigs are renowned for being smart. And then they are also treated as, you know, even less than cattle. So like that was a thing he was that kind of duality in the same way that like a mouse can be really cute, but then also it's vermin. Um, is something he was interested in. But then he said, as the book comes to a close, I couldn't have cared less about my metaphor because he realizes he's like, okay, now anytime I want to introduce another type of person, I have to decide what animal they are. And people are always asking me what the Italians would have been if I'd put Italians in the book. And he and he's clearly I I mean at least to my eye clearly trying to depict as few mm-hmm. animal people as possible. Because what you you got the you got the mice are mice are Jewish people the the cats are Germans yep. okay the the 
Americans Our beat dogs. Germany, yep. so I guess they can be dogs. That's easy enough. Like France, you got frog legs, so I guess they can be frogs or something. <laughs> like it, you get, it gets more tenuous the further out you go from like the core metaphor. And, and the the pigs as poles thing doesn't really fit the metaphor, but he does, and I think you know, in my experience reading the book, I think he succeeded. Like he needed a different animal that was in between because he needed to show that like there were poles that weren't Jewish that were like being treated differently by Germany, not treated well, but Mm -hmm. differently, Mm -hmm. but then that also treated Jews differently. Like, so he needed a visual language that would allow him to show that power dynamic. Well, then, and then he also needed a visual language that could show what it looks like when, Jewish people are trying to pass it yeah, as something yes. else. And so that that's where in the book you get the mice wearing pig masks because and, they're, you know, they're they're trying to blend in with native poles so they don't get treated like Jewish people. Yeah. And and that goes back to what you said earlier Andrew when we get that shot of art who is like a human with a scruff like five o'clock shadow wearing a mouse mask on a pile of uh, mouse corpses, like trying to wrestle with what he has become as an author, but not Mm -hmm. knowing what to do next. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. Like that's very, very talented stuff. I don't like (laughs) to have a way to, to just like, I don't know. It's just very effective. The mask metaphor is is really useful, and and in those few pages where he's also getting a lot of um, art is like these characters meant to represent like people responding to the first mouse publication. Yeah, um, they're all wearing masks of various people, mm-hmm. um, and there's that one that's like I think a German reporter who's who's like wearing a cat mask who's like young German people. Are are inundated with stories about how bad the Holocaust was. Like, isn't it enough that they they don't need to feel guilty, do they? And Art's like, I don't know, man. I'm maybe writing about do. my maybe dad. Everybody, maybe everybody needs to feel guilty all the time. I think that's what, what he says. Is what he yeah. says. Yeah. And it's like, oh, that's not relevant at all to any conversations that happen here in America about any of the sins that our nation has committed. Yep. <sighs> Part of what we've been responding to and also what I think, you know, we've both said is like really valuable, valuable about the book is it's uh primary document status. It's mm-hmm. that's not a phrase. It's primary source. It's not a primary is primary <laughs> document a thing. I don't, I don't know. know. Um, but there's a couple things to that end that I found really compelling. One is like uh, the depiction of Auschwitz and the way that, Vladik talks about it like it's not just that it's in the book but that like Vladik is saying to Art I was there I saw the chimneys I saw it this is not me like relaying information to you um, and and also dispelling any of the I do think the book does a pretty good job of like Art being like well why didn't people you know, why wasn't there more resistance or yeah, did right. people really know what they were going to? And Vladik's like, listen, there were people who fought. We were outnumbered and we honestly were still grappling with what was happening to us. Um, the, we also had been hearing already what was going to happen to people. We knew what was going to happen. That 
it was terrible and we had to f- confront it but like it wasn't like we were like oh what's gonna happen when we go there mm-hmm. um and i was really struck by the point in the book where we actually get discussion of what the like gas chambers were is part of Germany's attempt to destroy the record, right? Yeah. Is they don't, we don't get a depiction of them until Vladik is enlisted in helping, or no, he's talking to someone who is enlisted in helping to take them down mm-hmm. or dismantle them because the Russian front is coming in and Germany doesn't want people to know what was going on there. And so like, for a book where we're talking about how important it is that people know about what happened and and know about this book, the book itself is aware of the erasure of this type of stuff. Yeah. Um, which I just found, like, I, I couldn't have told you that that's how the book did it until I was rereading it, and that was really impressive. Um, and yet, Andrew, I liked the parts where Vladik and Art kind of, like, disagree about stuff, the only one I can think of off the top of my head is when Art is like, oh, yeah, and weren't there, like, orchestras there? And Vladik's like, no? No? <laughs> yeah. And Art's like, it's pretty well documented. And Vladik's like, no, didn't see him. <laughs> and I, I just thought, like, for a work of nonfiction, it is still aware of, like, it being one person's perspective. Yeah. Um, That I thought, it's, I don't know, that... Le- that it is both limited and still valuable uh, comes across. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, the book, I mean, there, there are, I think occasionally moments where art breaks in as like a, a narrator or like some more, uh, an omniscient figure who knows more than what Vladek maybe knows firsthand just by doing yeah. other research yeah. and stuff. And there's no voice that breaks in to be like, Oh, Hey, actually there were, or we're not like these orchids. It's just kind of like left hanging as a question. You no. Know, and, and we've alluded to it earlier, but like he did p- part of, and he mentions it in the book actually, is that like he did a lot of research to make sure that when he went to go draw it, he was not betraying what his father had said and he was honoring yeah. what had happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I think something that we can't really properly describe on the show is the ways in which the layout on the page really adds to how it works. I think that like that's kind of a given with a work like this that I, I feel like we are a little unequipped or under-equipped to get across. I don't know how if you feel the same. Um, I feel fully equipped to have every conversation that we've ever had. <laughs> Just just that, like, you know, the way he arranges stuff on the page, it certainly matters. It's very effective. The way that he yeah, breaks conventions on the page. Yeah, but no, you're, you're right that I'm, I'm not prepared to, no, comment on the work on that, on that like, visual, granular, like, how are the panels arranged sort of level. Um, just that the, the, just the page we already discussed where Anya's tail is poking out of a coat while they are trying to hide as poles... Um, I saw an interview where he was talking about that specifically that like he arranged that such that you are seeing kind of both sides of the mask mm-hmm. from a literal perspective. Mm-hmm. And if you know that he's doing that on that page, you can go find all the ways he's doing similar stuff elsewhere. Sure. I think. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so yeah, this is probably where we're going to wrap up our episode. Andrew, I think that feels right. Um, 
thanks for talking about this book with me. I'm glad thanks that I reread it. Thanks for talking about it with me. Thanks for getting a little upset about a thing that a school board in Tennessee did. Yeah. And and reminding myself of why I need to stay upset about things that have happened in our collective history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, we, in light of, like, what's going on in the news um, and in, in the, like, what can you do thing, like, we certainly wanted to make sure we could make a conversation about this work available to people who might want one. We are also going to make contributions from the money that the show generates to the fund for the school district of Pennsylvania uh, of Philadelphia excuse me there's not a school district of Pennsylvania that's not how school districts work Um, the fund for the school district of Pennsylvania uh, to support teachers working in the classroom in schools that are already under resourced uh, and need support we are also going to support highest um, which is a work uh, organization in Philly there's a national H-I-A-S P-A um, excuse me. And they, there's a national version of that organization, but the PA one does uh, refugee and immigrant uh, resettlement and reunification work uh, here in our area. So we are going to support them as well. They have roots uh, working specifically with Jewish immigrants, but their mission has expanded beyond that as need and uh, accessibility of services has expanded beyond that. So we're going to be making contributions to those two organizations. We encourage you to support organizations doing similar um, equity and education-focused work in your own communities, and we'll share out links to these uh, on our social feeds as well. So if you are remotely near us and want to support them, you can do the same. Um, Thank you all for listening. You can send us an email if you want at overduepod at gmail.com. Overdue Pod on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. You know the deal there. Our theme song was composed by Nick Larangis. Uh, Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where do they go? They go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there we have links to the books that we have read and the ones that we are going to read. Our February schedule is up on Twitter. It should be up on our website imminently, along with links. You click those links, you buy a book, uh, you do that through bookshop.org, which means we get a cut. Your local independent bookseller gets cut. You get a book, and everybody wins. Uh, we also have up there a link to our Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash overdue pod. Overdue pod. Wow. <laughs> we use the full overdue podcast in just enough places that every once in a while, my, when my brain like stops to think about it, it's like when you think about blinking, you know, like when you really, you know what I mean? No, I know. It's similar to when you think about a word too many times. You're like, it is both meaningless and I don't know how to spell it. Yeah. Yep. 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 Uh, yeah, patreon.com slash pod. Get bonus episodes early. We've got some new stuff coming there uh, by the end of this month, I hope. That's that the hope. We think That we think that folks will like. Um, and I think that's it. Craig, what are you reading for next week? Or do you just want to go down the February schedule? Or what? how do you want to Let me just this? go through the February schedule real quick. Next week Please we got do. Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry by Mildred D. Taylor. Uh, following that, we have Black Buck by Mateo Ascaripur. Uh, then we have The Widows of Malabar Hill by Suyata Masi. And then we're closing out the month with a bonus episode. More info about that at patreon.com. Um, we're going to just, you know, it's a it's a hard month. And we're just going to have some fun going to war with the mutant spider ants. It's uh, adventures Choose your own adventure. will be chosen. Choose your own adventure. Um, 
And so if you want to join us for that bonus recording, because maybe you will help us choose some adventures, please go to patreon.com slash overdue it pod. Yeah, we're, we're, we're working on it. We're working on, we're working on some stuff. Yeah. Um, we're excited to share these books with you. We're very happy that you listened to the show. We hope that this episode has been interesting to you. Cathartic or therapeutic. I don't know what you need from this episode going in, but hopefully you got it. And if not, that's okay. We're just guys that felt like people should be thinking about this book. <laughs> in, a, in a way that is like specific to the book itself and not just like generalized hangups that a bunch of randos who have never read the book... I mean, yeah. listen, Craig, they read the book. They just don't like the swears and the butts and the... Not yeah, all of them read the book. At least one of them said he never read it. He just read the reviews, Andrew. Mm, and, uh, don't you think that... Yeah, could we do this without all the cussing? Craig's, Craig is uh, leaning very far away from the mic so that you can't hear his anguish. It's like a sad Tazon day. <laughs> Uh, so everybody, thank you so much for listening to our podcast until we hit you next week. Please try your very best to be happy. <laughs> did you like that one? I really did. <laughs> <laughs> That was a HeadGum Podcast.